Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. So, Thanks. And that Christmas series is for a purpose, so that we might know him. The truth of the matter is for eons. Prior to Jesus coming, they were asking that question. How will we know him? How will we know that this is the Messiah? Because they knew the Messiah was coming. Prophets declared the Messiah was coming. But how will we know him? What will he look like? What will he do? What will he accomplish? How can we trust that, it's, that he's the guy? In all of history, how can we trust that he's the guy? And even though they had the word, much as we have the word, they sadly, a large majority of them missed it. And in today's world, a large majority of the people are still missing it. And that's the reason why we need to have this conversation. Generations and generations, decades, centuries, eons ago, people missed it. Those decisions have been made. Those people have moved on. But there are people today that haven't made that decision yet that, under, that need to understand that the Word speaks of Jesus Christ. From front to back, beginning to end, you can know Him. Amen? So there's a thing in the Scripture, or it's not in the Scripture, it's about the Scripture, and many of you have probably heard the terminology, the scarlet thread. And if you haven't, let me tell you what the scarlet thread is. The scarlet thread is the title, the name given to the idea that much like a scarlet thread, Jesus is seen throughout the Old Testament Scripture. That if you follow from chapter to chapter, book to book, all the way through the Old Testament, you're going to see the redeeming nature of Christ Jesus, who He is, what He will accomplish, even what He'll look like. And so they've coined this idea as the scarlet thread. And in fact, if you'll look, that is exactly right. You will see Jesus throughout the Scripture. He is, starting in the very first mention of Him, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He is the bronze serpent in the desert that was lifted up, and anyone that was bitten, could look at him and be saved. That's Jesus, the healer. Amen? But Jesus is also the Redeemer who brought the Hebrews out of slavery from Egypt and into the Promised Land. Jesus is also the red rope, the salvation for the harlot, Rahab. We see Jesus in shadow and type throughout the Old Testament. He's the fourth person in the fire with the three. But he's not just that, he's the ark in the Noahic flood that protects the people that belong to him, that seals them up and ensures that the punishment, the wrath of God doesn't get on them or that they're not exposed to it. This is the God that we serve. And he became that God to us through his son, Christ Jesus. He Well, he revealed himself as God to us through his son, Christ Jesus. He is the kinsman redeemer in Ruth over and over and over again. Throughout the Old Testament, you can see Jesus. 
if you know what you're looking for. And the idea is for us to know what we're looking for. And so I'm going to start that conversation today. The Old Testament saints and events were not tiles in a mosaic intended to be taken separately. They create a beautiful picture of Jesus. They show us all that we need to know. But we have to listen to them. We have to read them. We have to see them with a spirit and a heart open to the voice of God. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you. The first one, to prove this true, that we can witness through the Old Testament, Jesus Christ, Luke 24, 25 through 27 says this, And then he said to them, this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. If you're not familiar, Jesus has been resurrected. A couple guys walking down the road. Jesus comes up alongside them. They don't recognize him. And he, he says this, You foolish men. Because they're talking about, oh man, we thought this was the Christ. We thought he was the guy. You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? You know how they would have known that? Because the prophet said so. And to come to his glory, you know how they should have known that? Because the prophet said so. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to the things written about himself in the scripture. He says, everything that you needed to know, to know that you shouldn't be weeping right now, that you shouldn't be in torment right now, can be known through what everyone from the Moses, from Moses and all the prophets ever wrote about me. But you missed it. What the prophets had spoken of, what Moses and everybody after had spoken of, was for the sole purpose of exposing Jesus' purpose to us. In 1 Peter 1 through 10, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know, everybody say no, what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Prophets prophesied to predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So everything that they wrote, they wrote so that he might be exposed, and according to this text, so that we might know him through what's exposed to us. There is no excuse for us to not understand through a thorough reading of the Scripture that Christ Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. Amen? That's what I'm getting at. I want to show you two things over the next two weeks. I want to show you two of his, the greatest things we need to draw out of Scripture. That he is the greater king, according to Scripture, and he is the greater servant. And then on Christmas Day, I'm going to draw the curtain back on that and expose him for who he is in his birth on Christmas Day. But today I want to talk to you about the greater king. Jesus, according to everything that was written, is the greater king. Amen? Much like David, who himself was a shadow of Jesus, 
Every promise that God gave Abraham, every promise that God gave Moses, every promise that was given was reflected in the life of David. But David himself was a shadow of the greater king. The blessings, the things you see David do, the fact that his throne would be everlasting, these are reflections of the greater king. And so I want to talk to you today about the greater king out of Psalm 72 which is a song of Solomon, but it is about David as a shadow, a prophecy of who the Savior would be, of who Christ Jesus would be. And I'm going to argue that that thing that he would be is the greater king. So turn to Psalm 72, and we're going to try to do the best we can to get through it. Psalm 72, I'm going to start in one through four. I'm going to give you four things that prove his kingliness. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May you judge your people with righteousness, and you're afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Now, that's a lot of stuff, man. I'll be honest with you, I could probably make that in of itself a whole sermon. But there's one point I want to make out of these four verses, that the greater king, this Jesus king, he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. What does that mean? That means that his righteousness is the expression, the natural expression of his holiness. He is perfect in every way. There is no fault in him. Every king, every governing agency in this time and in that time was to say the least imperfect. Amen? But this is not true of the Christ that we serve. When we look at Jesus, we see his perfection. Because he is a righteous king. 1 Peter 2, 23 says this, He who committed no sin, nor has any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. See, Jesus was so righteous, so perfectly holy, he was incapable of sinning. This text literally says he committed no sin, he did not hate, he did not lie, he did not threaten, but instead trusted God. Well, you want to test your righteousness. When you think you have a right to sin, when you think you have a right to hate someone that's hated you, when you think you have a right to threaten someone else, see how well you line up with this scripture. Do you trust your own mouth? Do you trust your own actions? Do you trust your own vindication? Do you trust your own ability to get back? Or do you, like Christ Jesus, trust in the Lord? Because that's what righteousness looks like. Righteousness says, 
I am going to be perfectly righteous, not sin. I'm going to step back out of the way. And where I really want to punch this guy in the mouth, let's face it, we've all been there, right? We step back and we say, you know what? I'm going to let God handle this because God is the greater judge. That is beautiful righteousness. That's the king that we serve. And we saw that king in Christ Jesus. It's not enough to write it. We actually got, they actually got to see it. They got to see a child born in a manger, no inherent sin, that wasn't born with a sin nature because he was born by the Spirit, never, never physically sinned either, which means, could you imagine such a compliant child? I got a grandson, 18 months old. I love him. But his red hair is very indicative of his coming up on two years old. You know, his favorite words right now are, no, and me. Now, me doesn't mean me like as in him. Me means to him because he hasn't figured out how to pronounce it yet is Meemaw. And so he goes, no, me. And then he goes running off to her. And I'm like, oh, I slap you in it. And then I got to trust my righteousness, <laughs> you know? But he wasn't just a child. He was a teenager with no rebellion who was concerned with nothing else but his father's business, according to the word of God. He was a young man, tempted in every possible way, according to the Scripture, but didn't succumb to those temptations. He was a mature man, declaring, I do whatever the Father tells me to do. Oh, that we would be such people. But you know what? Because we know this is what the Word says about him, that he will be a God of righteousness, that he will be the king of righteousness. And this is what he did physically in regard to that prophecy. We can boldly, confidently, and declaratively state, Jesus is the Christ. Amen? The answer, the answer to the question is, how can I know it's him? Because he was prophesied as righteous, perfectly righteous, didn't hate, didn't sin, didn't revile, didn't do any of those things, but instead trusted himself to the Lord. And then he actually did it. It's a challenge to us. Because if we ask that question, who is he? We have to ask another question. Who are we? And a lot of times our who are we falls far short of the who is he. Amen? He's righteous. Before he's anything else, he's righteous. I love this. It says he vindicates the afflicted in verse 4, saves the children of the needy, and crushes the oppressor. Let me explain to you what that means. It means he justifies the afflicted. You've been justified today in Christ Jesus. Not because of your righteousness, but because of his. Not because of your sinlessness, but because of his. He has redeemed you, bought you back. Not because of what you deserve, but because of what he gave you. But he's not just the vindicator of the afflicted. He saves the children of the needy, which means rescues us from harm. He rescues the children, the needy children from harm. Anybody ever been rescued from harm? Let me tell you, if you've declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've been rescued from harm. You've been rescued from the fact that they're the fact. And I'm not talking 
probability. I'm not talking theory to you. I'm talking fact. You've been removed from the harm of eternal damnation and separation for all of eternity because there is a God out there that is righteous enough to come here and establish his kingship here on earth through us. Golly, what are you talking about, man? Y'all all get excited about that. I think that may be the first time I said golly up here. I got excited. But he didn't just save the children of the needy. He crushed the oppressor. I don't think that crush needs a, a, defi a definition. Literally destroyed, to smash the oppressor. Colossians says he not only destroyed the oppressor, but then it says he drug him across the street and made a public spectacle of him. That's from the old days, back when they would take a, take a kingdom and they would cage the defeated king behind the conquering king and would walk him through his own city in that cage so that the whole city could see he's not in charge anymore, I am. That's what Jesus did for us. He crushed the oppressor and then made a public spectacle of him. So even the enemy knows that unless you submit, he has no authority in your life. That's righteousness. That's the king that the prophets wrote about. That's the king we should see when we look at Christ Jesus. And that is who we should be because Christ Jesus died to give us that. Ooh, that's good. It's good preaching right there. Now I got to tell you, because he is these things, he is also the king of peace. Five through seven reads like this. Let them fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish in abundance of peace till the moon is no more. It's very poetic. Let me explain to you what that means. In verse 5, he says, Let them fear you while the sun endures. The question is, that I guess I need to ask, is how can he be the king of peace and expect us to fear him? That's a good question, right? Because... Until you fear the Lord, you have no hope for peace. And I'm not talking about trembling and crying and snotting around. I'm talking about a true reverential fear on your face submission to a holy, righteous king. We've already determined he's a righteous king. He deserves fear because he crushes the oppressor. And some of us have from time to time been the oppressor but for the grace of Christ Jesus, we would still be the oppressor deserving of crushing. But we have to fear him first. I would argue that until you fear him, you can't walk in peace. Because as, as I fear him, that fear builds in me. This reverence builds in me as I begin to understand a couple of things. His nature. Is there a problem so big he can't solve? Is there an enemy so violent he can't defeat? 
Is there a situation in my life that's bigger than him that he can't fix for me? Is there a need he can't give provision to? That is reverential fear. And that reverential fear makes me answer this question, those questions with this answer. No, there isn't. And because the answer is no, there isn't, there's none of these things that he can't accomplish because of who he is, I can walk in peace. You can walk in peace. But not just fleeting peace, not just peace for right now and then have to worry about not having peace tomorrow or not having peace the day after that. It's an all-encompassing, covers-everything kind of peace. I told you it's poetic language, but listen to what it says. As long as the moon throughout all generations, as long as there's a moon, you're going to have this kind of peace. What kind of peace is that? The peace that comes down like rain upon mown grass, like showers that water the earth. It's an all-encompassing, all-covering peace. You know, if it were to rain in here, there probably wouldn't be a 10-foot by 10-foot area. It didn't rain. What we have to do is place ourselves under the kingship of Christ and let His peace rain down on us so that we might be completely saturated through reverential fear with the peace that He has to offer. Amen? Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? So how does He offer this peace? How can He give us this peace? How can He promise us this peace? Because He Himself is peace. Because He sent peace. Because He promises peace. Because His peace is past, present, and future. In the past, He destroyed the enmity that was standing between us and God. Became the propitiation, the appeasement for the wrath that God had towards us. Did you know there was wrath against you because of your sin? Jesus stood in the gap for you and absorbed that wrath in the past so that we might have peace with God, so that we might be called children of the Most High God, so that we might be able to call out Abba, Father. And if you don't think that's a beautiful thing, you have no comprehension of God at all. In the present He continues to offer peace by His Holy Spirit. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it, do I give it to you. The world gives fleeting peace. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now, for that to make much sense, you've got to understand the context of that passage. Jesus is in His final discourse. He's telling the people He's leaving. He's in the middle of having a conversation that says, Essentially, I'm going. I'm not going to be here much longer. They're going to kill me. And the people that walked with him for three, three and a half years are freaking out. If you got to be in the presence of God for three and a half years, and then one day at dinner he says, oh, by the way, I'm leaving in a couple days, you'd be freaking out. And he said, stop worrying about it. Walk in peace. Don't be disturbed because I'm going to send you someone that's just like me, that's going to be able to walk with you, be inside of you, counsel you, and offer you the peace that I can offer you. But it's actually going to be better because I can only be right here, right now. 
when I send the Spirit, the Spirit will cover all of the earth so that all of the earth can presently walk in peace. So he offers peace past. He offers peace present. And he offers peace future. We should praise God for the hope that we have. That Spirit does more than just give us peace right now. It gives us hope for our future. It's our guarantee that we belong to God. People, I had a conversation with a young man this week. He goes, how can you know? I said, brother, when the Spirit reveals himself to you, you'll just know. And until he doesn't, it'll be like foolishness to you. But trust me, seek and find. How many of y'all could stand some peace? Certainly all of us could somewhere. All of us struggle with something. All of us stress over something. But we serve a king, according to the Old Testament psalmist, that is a king of righteousness. Because he's a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace. And because he's a king of peace, he's also a king of kings and commoners. He's a king of kings and commoners. Which means he doesn't give preference to one person over another person. Let me read this text to you, 8 through 11. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings, everybody say all kings, bow down before him. All nations, everybody say all nations, serve him. He is king of king and commoners. All people, nomads, enemies, kings of Sheba, Seba and Tarshish, from all places, from across the sea, from river to the ends of the earth, to the desert, from all the islands, all of them, according to this text, will acknowledge him. You know why? Because he's not given preference to the rich. He's not given preference to the haughty. He's not given preference to anyone. He is saying, listen, if you will trust in my kingship, if you will trust what the word says about me, that I am righteous, that I offer peace by the power of my Holy Spirit, then you can know that I am your king and I belong to you. You belong to me. And the peace keeps coming. Right? How do... That's, that's so good. What I want you to see here, it says, all bring gifts. This is our responsibility. This is their responsibility. To acknowledge his greatness. It says all gave gifts. You guys ever heard the proverb that says a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great people? Most of you all have heard that. I'll tell you, you've been taught, most of us, been taught that text wrong. We've been taught that our spiritual gifts make room for us. Matter of fact, when I was coming into ministry, people say, Man, just keep pushing, keep pushing. Your gifts will make room for you. I need you to go back and do a word study on that proverb, which is Proverbs 18, 16. 
That gift is a financial gift. If you will show worth to the king based on the worth that you have, you'll gain presence you never could have had. Why do I say that? Because we have to acknowledge properly who God is. All these kings from all over the world, all these commoners from all over the world, recognize greatness and express that greatness with a gift of greatness. Now, that's not a bid for money. That's a bid for what are you giving to the God that deserves everything? I'm sitting there on on this for a minute because the church needs to be a place that gives. Gives of our time, gives of our talent, gives of our treasure. Can I tell you, I like the fact that we're, we, we don't mind, this church don't mind writing a check. But if all you ever do is write a check and never pick up a shovel, go write a check somewhere else. Because there aren't a select two or three people here intended to do the ministry. All of us are intended to do the ministry. We have to be a dirty hands ministry. Or our check hands ministry ain't going to matter. Amen? You want to know why we serve the people nobody else wants? Because God wants them. Mm. And finally... Because he's the king of kings and commoners, all people from all places must submit to him. This text, Ephesians 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we will, we will lay whatever treasure we have at his feet. Whatever treasure you have, which in eternity isn't going to be anything much, you're going to give to him. And you're going to bow a knee. Why? Because whether you're a commoner, whether you're a king, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you live on that side of the tracks or this side of the tracks, Jesus is still king. Jesus would be king when he comes. Jesus is king now. Jesus will be king for all of eternity. What are we going to do with that? How do you prepare yourself to go into the throne room of the king? Finally, because he is king, He's a king to all. He's caring to all. He is the king who cares. 12 through 15 reads like this. This is the crux of what I'm going to finish covering. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. And let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long.
It says he delivers the needy. Doesn't just deliver the needy. He helps the afflicted. And he has compassion on the poor. All of us have a need, physical and spiritual. The Bible says that Jesus, in the Old Testament, that Jesus, the Messiah, will meet your need. And certainly he has. That he will help the afflicted. Whatever your struggle is, whatever problem you have, he's more than capable of holding you in his righteous right hand. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forsaken you. You might be crushed, but you're not destroyed. And he has compassion on the poor. Whether that be poor in finance or poor in spirit. He sees you. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. He came here that he might have a relationship with you. There's a text, a few words, four of them, five of them, that I I went past pretty quick. How do I get deliverance as the needy, protection as the afflicted, compassion as the poor? How do I receive those things? In verse 12b, the second part, it says, when he cries for help. We serve a king who only wants one thing from us, only needs one thing from us, to acknowledge that he's the king and cry for help. 